I thought I'd start just by emphasizing, I think what we all know, that uh, this pandemic is the most serious public health crisis that's confronted both our nation and the world in more than 100 years. CDC Director Robert Redfield squints against the sun in his cluttered office, his head in a now familiar Zoom square during a call. And we are now at this moment in time really at a very significant moment in the pandemic, particularly in the United States, uh, where we're seeing widespread transmission throughout our nation. It's December 10th, 2020, and he's talking to the Council on Foreign Relations, an independent think tank with an interest in foreign policy. It's also very sobering to realize that in the United States today, uh, that COVID-19 now is the leading cause of death surpassing heart disease and uh, other causes of death. Redfield runs down the numbers. In November alone, there were more than 4 million new COVID infections in the United States, more than a million every week. We're seeing between 175,000 and 225,000 new cases a day. And now, according to the COVID Tracking Project and really every other organization that tracks the pandemic, Around 3,000 Americans are dying nearly every day of COVID-19. 300,000 people have already died. Redfield soberly tells the council members on the call, this is how it is now. Probably for the next 60 to 90 days, we're going to have more desperate day than we had in 9-11 or we had at Pearl Harbor. This is a real, going to be a real unfortunate loss of life. And the reality is the vaccine approval this week's not going to really impact that. It was a stark assessment. Delivered plainly, this virus is ravaging the United States, and it will be for the foreseeable future. But do we have to accept this? Is acceptance all we can do? I think I know who to ask. This is a Petri dish side dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and this week we talk to a mathematician. Yes, a mathematician, Dr. Juan Gutierrez. We first met Dr. Gutierrez back in July. He's the chair of the math department at the University of Texas, San Antonio, and he was desperately trying to get the word out about the summer surge that was then gathering steam in Texas. Think New York City but times four, because we have four large metropolitan areas. Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio. Gutierrez started building complex mathematical models in January to try to predict what COVID would do when and where. And by July, he was doing the equivalent of jumping up and down and shouting at the top of his lungs to get people to pay attention. A train was bearing down on Texas, he said. We are going to see an increase in cases. If that growth remains unabated, if it keeps growing at the pace in which it has been for the past few days, we are going into hundreds of thousands of cases for every metropolitan area in Texas, which is not very different from what happened in New York in March. We all remember, I'm sure, what happened in New York City in the spring. 
Hundreds of deaths every day. Healthcare workers wearing garbage bags because there wasn't enough personal protective equipment. Hospitals overwhelmed. A field hospital in Central Park. Mobile morgue trucks stationed around the city. It was a nightmare we all hoped wouldn't be recreated elsewhere around the country. Dr. Gutierrez was grim. Stopping the trend of the disease in this moment might be like trying to stop a two-mile-long train or turning around a transatlantic cruise ship. It might not happen quickly. But back then, he offered a hopeful note. He thought his model would look vastly different if people changed their behavior. When we talked back in July, the governor had decided again to close bars. Face coverings were being mandated in businesses in some Texas counties. So Gutierrez said this might have slowed the spread of the virus, but we wouldn't know right away. If it did, that's great news. Because then we know that we have a tool that indeed can change the course of this pandemic. If it didn't, then we have to brace for a very hard hit that we're about to receive in Texas. Then, just after our conversation in July, Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued a statewide mask mandate. And we saw that very rapidly, the acceleration of the disease decreased. It, it, it started slowing down within two weeks, and it stayed at a relatively low level. When I talked to Gutierrez again in November, he reflected on the dramatic change just mandating masks had had on the course of the virus in Texas this summer. He said that surge in July, while still serious, was nowhere near as deadly as it would have been without the governor's mask mandate. He said, this is just one example of how changing our behavior works against this virus. Time and time again, he's confirmed this with his mathematical models. Our choices matter. So I wondered what Gutierrez's models were telling him about what's to come with this winter surge. Is the situation as dire as Dr. Redfield says? So I asked. Dr. Gutierrez? The modeling exercise of trying to predict cases after Thanksgiving is exceedingly complicated because there was no uniform response across communities in the U.S. to the threat that the disease is posing. Travel was uh, common. Uh, People hit the roads. There were congregations. And although cases are increasing, there is a sense in many communities that the disease doesn't really pose a great risk. This has come together and what we have observed is an uneven response in the US. In some places, COVID is growing exceedingly fast. In some other places, it's growing at a lower pace, but the growth is generalized. And what might be happening is that different places are at a different point in the growth curve. Those who have an early start and come to Thanksgiving with a higher momentum, those are the case, the places where we see cases explode. And we knew it from weeks ago that we would reach this level. The question is, how long is it going to be sustained? The fear is that this, this will be sustained for a number of months, maybe two months, maybe up to three months that we might see a larger number of cases, it is possible. Okay, so that's 
what Dr. Redfield means when he says, essentially, we should prepare for a lethal winter. So where we are right now is these 3,000-ish cases daily. And what we might see for the following weeks is between 3,000 and 5,000 uh, ranging there, bouncing back and forth. Uh, some places will keep growing. And, and that's what we have in this moment. By Christmas, if people don't change behavior, we might pass the 6,000 threshold uh, daily. 6,000? Uh, how do we get 6,000 American deaths a day? Under the conditions that we have today, the most likely scenarios that we will remain between 3,000 and 5,000 per day under the mitigation measures that we have today. That is, a segment of the population is aware. They understand the problem. Other segment of the population is just oblivious to, to, to the problem. We will have an increased number of contacts in, in Christmas. Some people will go on vacation. Campuses will close. Uh, people will travel. If we don't increase mitigation measures to counter the effect of those congregations, this disease could accelerate further. Dr. Gutierrez, 5,000, 6,000 a day? Those numbers take my breath away. The fear that many people have, what I have computed as an estimation for the U.S., unless we communicate the risk and people change behavior, we could be between half a million and 1.2 million deaths by the end of March. One million deaths by the end of March? If, if we change behavior, we could be, uh, we might be able to remain under the half a million mark. I can't believe under a half million Americans dead of COVID by the end of March is actually on the low end of what we should prepare ourselves for. I mean, that's in the range of the 1918 pandemic when 675,000 Americans died. It, it's a horrible loss. People who shouldn't have to die, that they don't need to die, but will die, will die unless we take action. And action is we have to tell people this is real. What we have been telling for months, this is a disease that it has the potential to decrease the life expectancy of the human species if, if our communities refuse the vaccine. That, that's, that's what we have in our hands. This is one of the uh, most terrible diseases that we have faced in a very long time. So what can we do to make a difference at this point? I mean, if we can save a half a million people by making smarter choices, well, I want to be making smarter choices. From a mathematical point of view, there are points that we can control easily in absence of a vaccine. Those are the contact rates between infected people and susceptible people and government interventions because that changes the behavior of people. So the contact rates are decreased when people wear masks. That is the probability that an infected person infects a susceptible person is decreased by decreasing the number of pathogens that are floating in the air. Or you just decrease the number of contacts, the number of times that people interact face-to-face -face or in close proximity. Uh, indoor gatherings are a no-no in this moment. That would be at a very high risk. Uh, congregations, even Outdoors, without the use of masks, in this moment, is a no-no. Don't do it. It's, it's very difficult to control. I have kids. 
other people have kids. This is the time when they run around. And it's very difficult, but that's what needs to be done. Okay, so even with the holidays coming, you're saying no gatherings of any kind with people outside of your household, at least for now, and masks both inside and outside if you're away from your household, right? Wear those masks is the most effective uh, contention measure that we know for this pathogen. Everything else, it's an addendum. It's extra. We have to wear those masks. And particularly, we have to wear good masks. There are many masks that are fashionable that lack the uh, piece of metal, the wire, on top of your nose, which happens to be very important because it allows you to mold the mask to your face and to your nose, minimizing the amount of uh, flow, airflow, that uh, reaches your nose and filtered, and also captures the air coming out of your mouth. Um, proper masking, constant masking, outdoors and indoors. So over the last couple of days, um, Facebook friends and friends on social media are popping up left and right positive for COVID. Every day, the circles get smaller and tighter, and I think that's probably true for a lot of people. Do you think as more people start to know people who've gotten sick or have died, that might influence their choices? Will people start taking precautions then? From a purely quantitative point of view, uh, I can tell you that this information is running rampant, that we can measure it. And I can only speculate in this moment that when that alternate version of reality, which is a falsehood, is confronted with the reality of a known person dying, I believe that people might change their opinions, might change their views. It, it, I think it's very important to understand that we, we don't have fundamentally bad people in our communities. I think that we have people who, in good faith, trust the information that is being offered to them. And what we have to question is the sources of, of that information. Definitely. So let's talk about the economy for a second. A lot of people throughout the pandemic have sort of framed this as an either or. You can either care about public health or you can care about the economy, but not both. Now, right now, it seems like that belief is being strengthened for some because community spread is out of control in a lot of places and certain types of businesses where hospital systems are on the edge of collapse are being asked to close again. Without government support, people can't afford this, and it absolutely must feel like an either-or. Either they protect their physical health or their financial health, and they're feeling desperate. But you've never thought, have you, back when the virus was, you know, under better control, that the economy needed to shut down to maintain control, right? You were never an either-or guy. Shutting down the economy is not necessary, because if people protect themselves and others by these very simple measures, we might be able to interact conduct business and carry, carry on with economic activity in our lives in a different manner, but in a productive manner. It has been the irresponsible behavior of some who uh, just opt not to protect themselves and others that in some cases have forced communities, governments to shut down the economy. 
And you've become very outspoken about the value of mitigation measures, mask wearing in particular, which I think is pretty clear from our conversation. You're passionate about this. You're right. I'm very passionate about getting the word out about mitigation strategies because we have evidence, very strong evidence, that when the message is consistent, when public authorities tell the communities that certain course of action has to be taken for the protection of the entire community, those measures have an effect. How does it feel to keep trying to get the word out while watching case counts and deaths continue to climb? Uh, It feels like uh, the mythical figure of Cassandra. Because I have evidence that is telling me what is the potential of this disease. I'm looking every single day at every location, every county in the U.S., in 188 regions in the world, including the U.S., trying to estimate how many people are going to die. Uh, It feels a little bit heavy trying to uh, compute the number of deaths every single day. It feels also uh, a little bit frustrating because I see some people who still today deny that COVID-19 is a problem. Still, there are people out there saying that this is a hoax. So if there's one message you'd like our listeners to take away from this conversation, what is it? The message is we could be heading to a dark place, and it's our choice if we head in that direction. Let's change course and let's go to a more brighter future. The the solution is in our hands and in our nose and mouth. Wear those masks. There's this quote, usually attributed to Winston Churchill, but who knows? It's the internet. Um, Regardless, the quote is, if you're going through hell, keep going. It's kind of cliche, so much so that I found it emblazoned on a refrigerator magnet I bought for a friend who was going through a tough time once. I think it's become cliche, though, because of its simple wisdom. If you're in hell, don't have a seat. Get out of there. We're in a kind of hell right now. I don't think I'm being dramatic when I say that. I mean, when the director of the Centers for Disease Control says we can expect to experience a 9-11 of loss every day for months, that's a kind of hell. And even with a vaccine, we're right in the middle of it. We can't go back and all start wearing masks in March or in July or even in September. Our government can't go back and maybe start paying people to stay home and pay businesses to stay closed so that we might have started this long winter with much lower case numbers and transmission rates and deaths. We can't go back. We are where we are. And where we are is headed into what Dr. Redfield predicts will be the most difficult time in the public health history of this nation. So what do we do with that information? Have a seat? 
When I was looking around the internet to see if it's made any progress on figuring out who actually said the thing about going through hell, I reread Churchill's most famous speech, given before the British House of Commons on June 4th, 1940. The one about fighting on the beaches and in the fields and in the streets and in the hills. The one where he said Britain would never surrender. Things were looking pretty bleak for Britain back then, with the Nazis taking a firm hold of mainland Europe and the U.S. reluctant to get involved in World War II. Churchill had prepared his nation in a speech given the month before for what he called a grievous ordeal, with many long months of struggle and of suffering ahead. But... In this speech, the one on June 4th, he said in a kind of rousing oratory that won Gary Oldman an Oscar for his performance of Churchill, that Britain would not flag or fail. It would never surrender. Even if it were subjugated and starving, it would never surrender. So... The months ahead are going to be extremely difficult. That's a simple fact. But we're not powerless. We can protect our families. We can protect ourselves. And in doing so, we can protect an unknown number of unknown others by slowing the spread of this virus. You heard Dr. Gutierrez. His model says by the end of March, worst case scenario, if we don't change our behavior at all, more than a million Americans could be dead of this disease. But if we make small changes, we could save hundreds of thousands of people. So even if my mask wearing only saved my daughter and me, that would be enough for me. But by making smart choices, I am also not spreading the virus to family and friends and then through them to their family and friends and so on. That's how you break the chain of transmission. We're each a link in the chain. Remove yourself, your link, and your chain breaks. So that's what we have to do now, I think. We keep going. We don't flag or fail. We never surrender. We don't have a seat. We break the chain. This episode of Petri Dish Side Dish was produced by me. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Mark Mehmet is managing editor of the Texas Newsroom. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. <laughs>